stand with us. Let's praise the Lord together. song. It is good to be together as the people of God singing about our risen King. First Corinthians chapter 12 verse 27 says, now you are the body of Christ. That is a plural you in the Greek. That's a y'all. Y'all are the body of Christ. 
And sometimes we can get a little individualistic centered in thinking about how the Holy Spirit dwells in us, that your body is a temple. Again, that in the Greek is a y'all. Y'all's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the significance of that is that God gets more glory when we are together worshiping him. You think, I heard this really good illustration this week, that if you have, take your favorite football team or baseball team, basketball team, and they win the national championship, but you're the only one who watched the game. Nobody was in the stadium. Their team doesn't get very much glory, just you going, woohoo. They get some, but not much. But if the stadium is full of people celebrating that national championship, if the whole world is watching on TV, then that team gets more glory. How much more so than when we gather together as the church to give glory and praise to the Savior who has risen from the grave? He gets that much more glory. So I hope you're excited to be here this morning knowing that your presence with the body gives God more glory. That's why we're all glad and excited you're here. And if you would, as we continue to worship, take out your worship folder. Inside there, you'll find all sorts of information about stuff that's going on in the church. You'll also find a little piece of paper called a check-in card. And if you would take a moment to fill that out and let us know that you're here, that would be a big blessing to us. You can also do it over your phone. We have a church app that you can download for free if you're technologically savvy and like to do that. Um, but on the phone app and on the checking card, there is a place for you to put um, any prayer requests that you have, whether it be prayer requests or praises. We would love to pray with you, for you, alongside you, and rejoice with you if you want to share things that the Lord is doing in your life. Um, we love to see those things and, hear, and pray along with you. If you're visiting with us, whether it's your very first time or you've been coming for a couple weeks or a couple months, we're very glad that you're here. We want to extend a special welcome to you. I know a lot of people here in the church would just love to meet you um, and answer questions you have. We also have a welcome desk just outside these double doors. Um, You can go there at the end of the service if you like, and there's uh, more information we can give to you about the church. We can answer questions you have, and we'd love to give you a gift just to say that we're glad that you're here and very thankful for you. Now, we have got a lot of boxes here on the stage. You guys have done a great job this year, and we want to say thanks for your participation and your sacrifice in preparing these boxes for Operation Christmas Child. And this is something that is an exciting thing to do every year, but um, just because they're up here and about to leave the the church and go out to another country doesn't mean we're done. It means that we need to keep praying, because these boxes need to make it to their destination, and then when they get into the hands of the children, we need to be praying that the Lord would... um, bless the gospel seed that is planted upon their hearts through this ministry effort. So please keep praying for these boxes and please pray for the children who will receive them, that they will get to hear the gospel and that God would cause it to change their lives radically. I want to let you know that uh, the next next week we're starting a special three-part series um, for our ADE, our Adult Discipleship Elective, during the 930 hour. And it'll be right here in the Family Center and it's going to be called the Generosity Project, Generosity Project. And so Chris Metalman and, and Mike Rassi are going to be leading that class and just kind of going through the scriptures and showing us how generous God is to us in our life and how that should translate into us imitating him and being generous as well. And so we're going to look at biblical principles about that and how we can intentionally grow in becoming generous people in imitation of our generous uh, Father in heaven. So I'd encourage you all to come to that for the next three weeks. Um, we've got some exciting things coming up. We've got baptism. 
that is going to be awesome. We're doing that right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand the mic off to Pastor Kevin, who's going to introduce the folks getting baptized. Well, good morning, church. It is so great to worship the Lord together, as we've already done in song, and uh, today we get to do so in baptisms. This is a privilege. We never want to take this for granted. This is a special, special privilege whenever the church gets to see Jesus' disciples obeying his command to be baptized as his followers. You say, what in the world is believer's baptism? What is, what is the, why do we have a tub filled with warm water? It's like a jacuzzi water. It's really, really warm. It's really nice. But why would we do such a thing in a public service and get people all wet in front of everybody? What's the point of that? Well, let's be clear about some misconceptions. There's nothing special about this water that washes away sin. What washes away sin? Jesus' blood. That's right. It's the blood of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross so that every sinner, anybody who sinned, can confess their sins to God, and God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of Jesus dying in our place. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead so that we could be made brand new and we could be forgiven. And we celebrate that salvation. But then he, he, goes to, he tells those who are his disciples, those who follow him, those who have been saved, he says, I want you to be baptized. I want you to be publicly identified with my death and resurrection so that the world would know that you're on my team, that the world would know that you're my followers. And so baptism doesn't save us. It's the blood of Jesus that saves us. You put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. But once you are saved, God commands all followers of Jesus to be baptized in water to publicly publicly represent their identification with Jesus' death. That's why we go into the water. It's like it's a watery grave. We, get, we identify with his death, and then we bring him out of the water, don't we? To, re, to represent our identification with his resurrection. And so today we have the privilege to do that with three of our uh, sisters and brother. And so to the first one to come is Maddie Jenkins. So Maddie, would you come? And uh, we get to celebrate with them as they obey God in this public act of identification as one of his followers. It's nice and warm, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. All right, well, Maddie, if you can just talk right into this microphone. I know you've prepared your answers here, but uh, can you tell the church, why do you want to be baptized today? I want to be baptized today because I want to express the joy I have in my salvation and I want to declare to you all, hey, Jesus has saved me and I have chosen to follow him. Amen. That's exciting. Am I the only one that gets excited? <laughs> Woo okay. So do you have a story about how God's worked in your life to bring you to this point that you can share with us, Maddie? As a child, I learned that I cannot depend on people, but I have learned that I can depend on Jesus. I would like to tell you how I learned that. So I grew up in a Christian home, but I did not follow Jesus. I knew about him, but I did not know him or the right way to follow him. 
I learned how to follow Jesus at church when Jody and Pastor Kevin picked me up and took me to Awana, and on the way there and on the way home, we would have such good conversations about Jesus. We would eat together, and they were a really good example of what following Jesus looked like, and I really wanted that. Later, I started attending Sunday school, and even though I knew about Jesus, I still wasn't following him. My life did not reflect Jesus, and I realized I needed to repent and change, and that is what I did. I repented. People always told me that certain things aren't forgivable, but Jesus forgave me completely. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I learned not to depend on people but on Jesus because he will always lead me in the right direction, and I will always know where to go if I follow him. When I'm struggling with something, God always shows me the way to go. For example, recently I've been struggling with forgiveness, and it seems like every Bible lesson has been teaching me about forgiveness. I want to close with this. Before I was saved, the bad times seemed like they would last forever, and the good times were temporary, but they were all I had. When I was saved, I learned what hope really was. One day all the bad times will be gone, and the good times will only be so much better, and they will last forever. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes on not not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen. Amen, Maddie. Thank you so much. You can go ahead and have a seat. Let's pray for Maddie together before she's baptized. Father God, what a joy it is to witness this public identification of Maddie Jenkins with your death, burial, and resurrection. Father, you've done such a mighty work in her life. You're an amazing God of forgiveness. You're an amazing God of redemption. You're an amazing God of salvation. We praise you. We praise you. We praise you. We pray now as her church family that you would pour out your amazing grace on Maddie Jenkins. Oh, Father God, please help her to walk in your spirit. Help her to have a powerful witness for you. Use her life however you would want to use it for your namesake, for your fame, for your glory. Maddie has such a desire for evangelism, such a love for your gospel, and I just pray that you'd use her powerfully to bring others to know how good you are. And together as your church, Father, we pray that you'd protect our sister from sin, that you'd protect her from fear, that you'd protect her from doubt, and that you'd fill her with joy, all because of who you are. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, Maddie, based on your faith in Jesus Christ, it's my joy today to baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. All right, and now uh, Sherry Jenkins is coming. Sherry is Maddie's mom. It's a pretty special family event today. Take your time. There you go. Good job. Well, Sherry, why do you want to be baptized today? I want to be baptized so that everyone will know that I am a Christian and that through the life, death, resurrection, and grace of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, I am saved. Hallelujah. That is so good. 
That is so good. I know you've written out a testimony. Can you read that for us so, so we can know how God's worked in your life to bring you to this point? Yes. As I was thinking about what I wanted to share with you today, I prayed for the Holy Spirit's guidance because I wasn't really sure where to start or what to share. First, he guided me to Romans chapter 12. This is significant for two reasons. The first is that this is the chapter I shared with my daughter Maddie, I just saw, when we, she went on the mission trip with Newcastle to San Francisco this past summer. It seemed so fitting for her first mission trip. I thought, okay, God, there's something you want to show me, so I read it again. I will explain the second part of the significance after I tell you a little of my history. I grew up in a denominational church and went to a parochial Christian school through the eighth grade. When I went to college, I didn't go to church very much, and soon I received a letter that since I wasn't giving, the church was excommunicating me. I could hardly believe it. No one ever reached out, and all I could think about was how hypocritical they were. I was hurt, I was sad, because this wasn't what I was taught all those years in church and school. It hardened my heart to the idea of being part of a church, and I thought I could be a Christian in my own way, studying my Bible and praying alone. Back to Romans chapter 12. In verse 2, Paul said not to be of this world, but allow God to change you and your thinking, and you'll know God's will for you, which is good and perfect and pleasing. Okay, I should be open-minded to what God is telling me. Then in verse 3, Paul warns, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourself by the faith God has given you. Okay, time for some honest evaluation. And the conclusion? Jesus said to share the gospel. How can I share the good news of Jesus by keeping to myself? How is that showing Jesus' love to others? I was certainly not following Jesus' commands. I am the hypocrite. Holy Spirit, boy, did he open my eyes. It isn't about my comfort or my feelings. I need to get over myself. This is about God and the gift of his son, Jesus, dying for my sins. So I thought, what should I do? Well, another prayer, and squirrel. Over to 1 Thessalonians 2.4. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Okay, I need to be all in. I want to please my Lord and Savior, so there's no going back to being a Christian in my own way. But we weren't done yet, so continuing back to Romans, Paul explains how we should pull our gifts, our, I'm sorry, pull our, our uh, how we should pool our God-given gifts and talents along with our brothers and sisters of Christ's body to work together to strengthen and build the church and to spread the truth of redemption through faith in Christ. My gift is not public speaking, but thankfully there are other ways to serve and be a part of God's family. Finally, Romans 3.12 says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. This verse is the epitome of Jesus' love for me. He hates my sins. When I repent, he forgives. And when I do what he commands, he remembers. He is asking that I give others the same love that he gives me. And what better way to share the love than to tell others the gospel, to share Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Sherry. You can go ahead and have a seat. We want to pray for you here. Thank you. Let's pray for our sister. Father God, what a joy it is to hear Sherry's testimony of just how you've continued to show her through all of the uh, experiences of her life 
that your way is best. And though people disappoint us and though uh, our past experiences with churches have left us at times feeling hurt or, Father, still you are faithful. You are a God who forgives sin. You are a God who has a good design for your church. And so we pray, Father, that even as Sherry has taken this public step to uh, publicly identify with you, that she would continue to strengthen her love for her church and that she would be a blessing to her church and that you'd use the church to encourage her and strengthen her and build her up and, and, and glorify your name mutually together. Oh God, we're so thankful for how you have worked in Sherry's life. Please encourage her as a mom, as a wife, as a, as a worker in the marketplace, Father, that she would just give her joy a powerful testimony for you. Please fill her with your spirit. Bless her for your namesake and for your glory. And together everyone would say, amen. Well, Sherry, based on your faith in Jesus Christ, it is my joy today to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And now Kevin Jenkins is coming, the father of the family, and Pastor Summers is going to baptize Kevin. So, Church, this dear man is Kevin Jenkins, and I get to spend part of Friday afternoons each week with him. So I know the answer to this question, but you don't, and I want him to tell you why he is coming to be baptized today. I want to be baptized today. I want to acknowledge the Holy Spirit that has been with me, guided me through my life, and to let all know that Jesus Christ is my Savior and because of his sacrifice of shedding his blood for me, they may have everlasting life through him and with him. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I happen to know that he has had a very interesting life. He has gone everywhere and done everything there is to do, but I want him to give you a little synopsis of the story that brings him to us today and of his testimony. My family growing up, we were very close. My mother and father divorced when I was a young man. With four brothers and a younger sister, we stayed close to our mother and worked to keep the family together. My mother was a devout Catholic and guided us through all, our, all of us through our first Holy Communions, our confirmations, with Mass on Sunday, and sometimes Wednesday evenings. Although baptized as a baby and confirmed, from the, confirmed through the Catholic Church, I was left empty inside. I didn't know what it was. My prayers were, were the name. My prayers were the same. I felt like I was reading from script every time I prayed. It wasn't what, I didn't know what it was. My prayers, when I was 16, year old, 16 years old, my 17-year-old brother was killed in a traffic accident. It hit me hard. I didn't know what to do. I went to my knees and prayed to Jesus to save me 
and guide me that I might find a way to see my brother when I died. When I prayed, I felt a calm go through me. For the first time, I ever felt something within. I tried reading the Bible, and I found it difficult for me, so I listened to others. We moved to Mackinac years ago. We searched for a church. My daughter, Madison, found Newcastle, and, we started attend and she started attending Awana. I noticed a church. I noticed a change in her and wanted to see what it made, it, made her peace and how she carried herself. After months looking, we found Newcastle, and I met a man named Phil. Phil guided me to help me better understand the Bible and the Holy Spirit. He, I learned through Romans 8, verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the, in the Spirit. So be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. I knew I had the Holy Spirit within me, and I wanted to tell everyone so. Colossians 3.15 states, we are called into the body. And 1 Corinthians 12.13 tells me we are baptized into the body. That baptism is from the Holy Spirit when I gave my life to Jesus. Today is my identification with Christ and his death. Romans 3. My identification, my identification with Christ and his burial. Romans 6.4a. And my identification to his resurrection, Romans 6, 4b. That's a first. <laughs> You're blessed. <laughs> my glasses are blessed. <laughs> and they're clean. for this guy. Are you ready? Father, Kevin Jenkins belongs to you by his choice and by your choice. You have brought him to this place to this day and you have led through his life. He is yours from the top of his head to the tips of his toes and he would have it no other way, nor would we. We rejoice in his salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and we ask you to continue to bless him and to teach him. He is a learner, and he wants to learn more about you and about your word. Guide by your Holy Spirit that adventure through this life. And I ask you for that through the name of Jesus. Amen. you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, would you please stand, because I know why we clap at the end of each baptism is because we're giving glory to the Lord. What better way to continue giving him glory than to sing together about how God has not only saved their souls, but saved our souls because of his sovereign grace. Let's sing together. One, two, three, four. 
was lost when you came calling me held in chains by the enemy but you broke them in victory now i'm free i am free you're my joy and you are my hope i am saved by your grace alone i will sing of your love for me i am free i am free you my god have saved my soul i am yours forevermore i won't be moved up this i'm sure you are my god and you save my Newcastle. It's good to see you all today. Despite the fact that I'm surrounded by a, a bunch of Christmas presents, we are going to be celebrating Thanksgiving, I think, later this week. And so at the start of the holiday season, I just want to wish you all a, a really happy Thanksgiving week. And it's my hope that uh, all of us can, can, as we go through this week, begin to shift our hearts and our minds to a, a grateful and a thankful attitude as we just dwell on how God has blessed each of us. So what, before I forget, I should probably dismiss the children for Children's Church. So 
uh, nursery through kindergarten age children can make your way to the back and you'll be directed to um, an age-appropriate lesson for you. So would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we turn to you this morning with expectant hearts as we worship you in song and in prayer and meditating on your word. You are a faithful God who continually meets every need we have. The psalmist wrote, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Lord, may we do all of that this morning. And as our families prepare for Thanksgiving this week, we ask that you would turn our hearts and our minds to think of, of all you have done for your people. Remind us this week of how great a salvation we have and restore our joy as we dwell on the truth that Jesus has secured our eternal victory over this world and continually intercedes for us in heaven to a holy father. We look forward to your return, Lord. We anticipate it and we pray that we would be alert and watchful for your coming. Father, we want to pray for our partner church, Calvary Baptist in Peoria. They have such a vital ministry in the city, and we just ask that you would favor their worship today. We're so thankful for the intentionality they have in their men's and their women's Bible studies every other week. We're thankful that uh, so many of their uh, brothers and sisters attend these Bible studies, and and, uh, we just pray that as they spend time together each week that they would renew their trust in you. A couple weeks ago, we focused our Sunday school hour on praying for the persecuted church, and we heard from a number of our global outreach partners, and we spent time that day praying for K and H serving in Topaz, and we want to pray for them again today. We've been praying for several of their recent interactions to bear fruit, that these men and women that they've met and have expressed interest in learning about the gospel, that it would be genuine, that they would have genuine interest, and that their relationship with K&H could just continue to grow. We pray that you give them boldness, and we pray that you'd open their hearts to the saving grace that can only come through Jesus Christ. We do want to say a special prayer for K&H's children as they attend to local schools and uh, at times uh, have some obstacles with language. We pray that you would Uh, strengthen them. We pray that you would develop relationships with other children and that that those relationships could glorify you. So we look forward now to hearing from your word today as Pastor Josh will teach us on spirit-controlled families. Guide his tongue. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be felt and present here today, and we ask that the seed that is planted would fall on good soil and bear much fruit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible, and especially children and students today, we'd like you to read along too. Just raise your hand and their ushers will give you one. So raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you've been around children or have children, or maybe you're headed toward that phase of them in this area, you'll probably at some point be part of a conversation that goes something like this. Okay, Johnny, uh, time for school now. Uh, wake up, come on, let's get going. Put your coat and your shoes on and let's go so we don't be late. Well, wh- why do I have to put my coat on? Well, it's 32 degrees outside. Uh, you need to wear a coat so you don't get a cold. Now, go ahead and put that coat on, get your shoes on and let's go. Well, why do I have to go to school today? Well, you have to go to school today because you need to get an education. And if you don't have an education, then it's going to be hard for you to do well in life. And you don't want to end up unemployed and not being able to do anything. So come on, let's go to school here. Well, why do I have to wear shoes today? Well, because it's 32 degrees outside. And if you walk across the parking lot in 32 degree weather, your feet are going to freeze and it's going to be very painful. And then you're going to have to go to the hospital. And then we're going to have a lot of uptime with that. So just put your coat and your shoes on and let's get your stuff and let's go. But I, I, I just don't understand why I have to wear that coat. Why, why can't I wear another coat? I, listen, I'm the parent here. Put your coat on. Put your shoes on. Let's hurry up and go. Let's gonna be, we're going to be late if you don't hurry up. Why do you have so many wrinkles on your face? Stop asking so many why questions. Just do what I say and go. Now, am I the only one that's ever been involved in some kind of a conversation like this? Anybody else there have, have had something like that in your life? Okay, thank you. So, We as parents know that it doesn't matter the ages of our kids, whether it's um, from the time they're old enough to start forming those questions, even through their teenage years, there's always those why questions. Why do I have that curfew? Why can't I get a smartphone? Why can't I go there with my friends? Why, why, why? And at some point along the way, maybe quicker than other times, we're going to say, because I'm the parent, that's why. That's all you need to know. Just do what I say. And there is a, a certainly an appropriate place for that, but as children grow older, they're going to need more than that. So have you ever wondered, what's behind the why? Why should children obey their parents? Is it simply because parents are the authority, or is there a greater reason? Well, our text today helps us understand that. And children, students, we are so glad you're in here today. Can you just raise your hand for me if, if you're a child or a student, whether five years old through high school? Okay. Good. Okay, good. Well, I just want to uh, give you a heads up, too, that there's actually going to be a test. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably didn't think of that, did you? No. <laughs> the test is going to come, though, after this service, when you get home, because I'm sure it won't take long for your parents to ask you to do something, and then we'll see how well we learned, okay? So we're thankful that you're in here today. Now, there's no question, parents, that parenting can be very intimidating at times. You probably feel overwhelmed a lot, uh, unsure of what to do and how to navigate things. And I think if we're just being honest, we we really wish we could bring, bring Paul in as guest speaker, put him right up here on the stage and have a question and answer session, don't you? And you'd probably like to say, you know, Paul, uh, just kind of wondering, just, you know, just wondering, why only four verses about parenting in the book of Ephesians? You know, it seems like we have got a lot of questions, Uh, questions about different things like, what do I do when my child won't eat their food? Or what should I do when they're in the middle of the store and they throw a temper tantrum? 
or how do I stop my child from being influenced by, by all those barbarians out there? Or what should I do when my adult child won't leave the home? What about all these other, what about all these other parenting questions here, Paul? Can you give us a little more on them? You know, how are we supposed to navigate parenting with only a few verses on it? Well, the Bible isn't some kind of encyclopedia or dictionary where you have this topic or word in your mind and you simply flip to the concordance and find that and that's all there is to say about it. No, the Bible's a lot different than that. I mean, you're not going to find gender reassignment in the concordance. You're not going to find temper tantrums there. In fact, you won't even find the word teenager in your Bible. But does that mean the Bible has nothing to say about those topics? Well, of course not. The Bible is very richly filled. It gives us everything we need to know. So even though those words aren't mentioned there, God has provided everything that we need to know. So if you think about the Bible as a whole, think about it as one big parenting story. The Bible starts in Genesis 1-1 with God speaking, uh, God speaking and establishing his relationship with creation as the perfect parent. Because he, is the, because he is the creator, he has the right and authority to tell his creation how to live and what their purpose is. So humanity is to live in right relationship with God and with one another for the purpose of being his rulers on earth, for representing him on earth, and for the purpose of advancing his kingdom. And we have those first couple of chapters in Genesis where we see this perfect family. Think about this for a minute. If you could just be transported to this perfect family where there's no fighting, where there's no talking back, where there's no conflict, where there's perfect obedience, what a beautiful place that would be in. Anybody like to be there right now? Amen. 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 But then we get to Genesis 3, and that reminds us of what went wrong. Because of sin, family relationships are broken. And you have Genesis 4, the first family feud, where one brother tragically kills another brother. We see accounts all over the place throughout the Bible of imperfect families, uh, Joseph and Eli's sons and Absalom. So disasters and parenting failures all over. The first five books of the Bible written to God's covenantal people, explaining to them how they are to live in relationship to God who has saved them. We see judges that shows the disaster that occurs when children deviate from God. We have the book of Proverbs filled with wisdom so that parents could walk wisely. Really, if you want to summarize the whole Old Testament in child parenting language, you could say it's the story of how God, the perfect parent, deals with his imperfect, rebellious child. By the time we get to the New Testament, we see that we're going to need a lot more than instructions and information if our parenting is going to work. I mean, my goodness, look at all those Old Testament laws. It wasn't as if parents didn't know what they were supposed to do. God gave us plenty of things to know what we should do. The question was, how, we, how do we do that? So in the Old Testament, we, await, we, we arrive at the long-awaited solution. God's answer to our parenting problem comes with not another set of rules to follow, not 12 steps or 10 tricks, nor in another set of curriculum that you pick up from the Lifeway store. No, God's answer to our parenting problem is found in a person, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who gives us everything we need. It's Jesus Christ who supplies all of the strength and help and resources that we need to face the parenting challenges that we face. Because of Jesus, we can have grace in our parenting to face those challenges. 
Because of Jesus, our main problem, our central problem of sin has been dealt with so that we can navigate those relationships. Our greatest problem of sin has even been met with a greater solution, Jesus Christ. So I think that if Paul were here, or if that we had gone back to see Paul, he would shake his head at us and give us a funny look and say, what, what do you mean only four verses about parenting? Did you not see from the whole of Ephesians how this letter is filled with riches and instruction to you as parents and child throughout the whole thing? I mean, did you forget the fact you were adopted as sons into God's family? Did you forget that all the riches of God's grace were lavished upon you so that every parenting challenge or every child challenge that you face is dealt by God's abundant, lavish grace? Didn't you, were, didn't you see that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? You have the power of God inside of you to meet those obstacles. You don't have a little nine volt battery working in you. You have more power in you through God in you than a nuclear power plant. Didn't you see, didn't you hear my prayer that God would open your eyes to behold his immense, his incomprehensible power and love extended to you? Didn't you miss the fact that you were once dead, demonic, disobedient, and destined for destruction children that I have saved and now placed into my family? Did you overlook the reality that God is able to do far more, far more than you could even think or imagine in your parenting and in your childhood? Now, I know I didn't specifically address or name every single parenting problem that you might come across, but goodness, God has filled you with his power, his spirit. He's placed you in a community of other brothers and sisters who are able to encourage and support you. So what do you mean, again, that I didn't have a lot to say about being a parent or being a child? So my hope today is that you come away with a greater sense and appreciation of God's grace that has been extended to you. I want you to see more than anything that you have a need for God's grace that surpasses any other need you have. For the mom of five under five, I hope, you need, I hope you see that what you need more than sleep, although you do need sleep, is God's grace. For the single parent trying to juggle that job and do all those family responsibilities by yourself, I hope you see that more, th more than what you need than another set of hands is God's grace. For the parents with those emotional and hormonal teenagers, what you need more than a rational child is God's grace. For the parents of prodigals, what you need more than the obedient child is God's grace. For the dad struggling with anger, what you need the most is not the model child, but grace. So no matter where we are, what we're facing or what we're going through, what we need most is God's grace. And this letter to the Ephesians really reminds us of God's grace, doesn't it? It's, it's grace just pours out of this letter. So by the time we get to chapters 5 and 6, Paul has already shown how God's redemptive plan has addressed that grace in our life, how his redemptive plan overcomes and changes us, how it changes relationships with others. In other words, the gospel permeates believers so that they have a peculiar odor to society. The gospel changes us and transforms us so it affects others as well. So if we were to ask Paul, Paul, what would you like us to know by the time we get here to chapter 6? I believe he would say something like, push past platitudes to practical particulars. What? Push past platitudes to practical particulars. In other words, 
You've seen those great mountains of God's grace. You've seen those beauties of his sovereignty and his love. You've seen those flowing rivers of justification and adoption, but have your feet actually hit those trails yet? In other words, how has the gospel changed and transformed you by the time you've arrived at this point in his letter? How has it changed and transformed you by the time you've arrived at this point in this letter? Do you simply know more information? I mean, do you have it all memorized right now? Or has there been a difference in the way you've been living and interacting with other people? I think it's good just to sit and reflect on that for a little bit. How have I been changed and transformed by this letter so far? And if I haven't seen anything, maybe I could stop and think about why that might be. So Paul places theology into action. He's been unpacking what redemption looks like in our lives. He's been showing us that God's grace should be transforming. It changes everything about us, including our relationships. And again, if there hasn't been a change yet, we need, to, we need to figure out why that is. Now, all of that makes for a very lengthy introduction, but I think it's important so that we don't have a disconnect between the truths that we hear today and the way that we live, because I don't want you coming out of here uh, just, just coming out with, okay, I know all there is to know what I should do as a parent. I know everything I should be doing as a child. And then you get in the car right after church, and boom, everything all blows up and there's a big argument, right? That's not what we want. We want to see this being lived out. So I hope to bring this to you today through the lens of encouragement, not discouragement. In other words, I don't want to beat you down by, by getting you to think of, wow, look at all the ways I'm failing as a parent or failing as a child. That's pretty easy to do. Anybody want to hear that today? No, no, no. I'd rather have you see this text through the lens of hope, through the lens of hope. Look at what God has done to restore relationships, to make it possible for a family to love each other well and to get along. Remember God's abundant grace to endure through those seasons of challenging children and runaway rebels. I can almost promise you this week that as we head into Thanksgiving and you're around a lot of family, that there's going to be conflict. And I'm hoping you can cling to these words in Ephesians that God has done something so that families can get along together well. You can't control what your kids are going to do, but you can control what you're going to do and how you're going to respond. So our main point today is this. God's design for the family is spirit-filled relationships. God's design for the family is spirit-filled relationships. So let's take a look at these verses and begin to unpack that. So Paul starts chapter 6. He starts it off with children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, it's easy for us to really skip over this first word, children, and just jump straight into what follows that. But this would have caught Paul's audience probably by surprise in a way, because typically children weren't addressed in this context. Now, children, as Paul is, is writing to these home churches here in Ephesus, uh, there would have been children there from ages five, probably through their teenage years. And the fact that Paul includes them is pretty significant. So we often forget about where children fit into God's redemptive plan. Be, it would really be easy for us if Paul hadn't put that in here in chapter 6 to really even wonder, well, where do you see children fitting in at all with God's redemptive plan? So that leads us to our first point. God rescues children and adults. God rescues children and adults. And I love the fact that God rescues children. That, that makes my heart so glad. Just as we've seen today in the baptism, we love it how God rescues children just as he does adults. 
His redemptive plan is not just for adults. It's not just for those of a certain age or a certain IQ or a certain place in life. God's plan of redemption includes children and adults. Have you ever considered, parents, that if your children are believers, how they are also your brothers and sisters in Christ, at the same time, they are your children? That gets a little complicated in our heads to think about. It doesn't erase the parent-child distinction, but it should hopefully point us to the fact that in eternity, this brother-sister relationship is what's going to continue. So I do think, at least personally for my life, if I think about my children in terms of they're my brother in Christ or they're my sister in Christ, it does change in some ways how I interact with them and how I, how I uh, treat them. Now, don't you love how the, the, the fact that the gospel is simple enough for children to understand, yet it's so rich, yet it's so full enough that scholars can spend their lifetime studying all the facets of the gospel and never squeeze out every ounce of truth uh, and grace that's in there. So the gospel is simple enough for children to understand. So, so children, students in this room, you can understand that you were born into this world, vipers and diapers, that you were born sinners, separated from God, that there was conflict between you and God, and that there was, there was a, a big problem, right? You can understand that. And you can understand that God provided a solution to that problem, that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners, including yourself. And you can understand that Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life, that he died on that cross, that he rose after three days in the grave, that he ascended to heaven, that he's ruling in heaven, and one day he'll return to earth. And children, you can understand that you too can be included in God's saving part, in God's salvation. You can be included in that. If you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you fully rely on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you too can have all those benefits of salvation. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the way that gospel is simple enough for children as well as adults to understand that. And I wonder, church, how well do you think we do at demonstrating that? Demonstrating the reality that the gospel is for children as well as adults. I'm thankful uh, for the way Newcastle does that, that the, these student and children's ministries reflect that. Children aren't treated as second-class citizens. They're, they're not treated as, okay, you're kind of on the back of the airplane in economy seating, and then when you mature and get old enough and have a family, now you can move up to first class, and then you can get all the benefits of being in the church. Young adults, college students, the same is true with you. You have all the benefits of being in God's family right now. You don't have to wait until you get to some place in life where you're making X amount of dollars and you know you have this and this and this going on. No, you're equally and fully part of God's family right now. Singles, you may not have that circle on your finger, but you're just as part of the circle of God as everybody else. And to our children with disabilities and to their parents, you too are equally and fully part of God's family. If you're like me, you wonder about our children, you worry about them maybe. Um, are they going to get picked on? Are they going to get bullied? Will people love them? Will they be pushed off? Will they be the outcasts? You wonder what's going to happen with that. But I am so thankful that God loves children with disabilities, and He includes them equally and fully in His saving plan as well. They have just as much of seat at, seat at God's table as does anybody else. 
And at this table, you're valued, you're loved as just as much as those who don't have disabilities. God delights in saving children with disabilities so that his greatness, his power, and his glory can be displayed. So by including children, Paul expects them to listen to what he has to say, right? He's not just addressing them because he thinks, okay, that's kind of a nice thing to do. He's expecting them to be able to understand it and obey what he has to say. He assumes that children are capable of obeying God. How? Through the power of God's Spirit. That's how, just like with us. You probably noticed that in these different sets of groups that's being addressed, started with wives first, then husbands, now it's children, then parents. Next week it'll be employees, then it'll be employers. He starts with those under authority and then moves to those in authority. Why? Again, because the gospel transforms relationships. The gospel helps those who are under authority know how to live in right relationship to those in authority. And God's transforming work helps those in authority exercise servant leadership to those under their authority. So children, you are under the authority of your parents. That's where God has placed you, under the authority of your parents. And I know, because I was a child, and I am a child, that that's not an easy place to be, especially when our sinful nature wants to push that authority off and take charge. Do I have any children or students here today who just love being under your, your parents' authority? I just can't wait for mom and dad to tell me, tell me what to do. I just can't wait for them to give me chores. Any, any children or students here today that would say that? I didn't think so. <laughs> I didn't think. Uh, I see you in the back, but I don't know about that. <laughs> I think there's part of us that really resists being under authority, right? We just want to do our own thing. But it's a good thing to be under the authority of our parents. So what does Paul say to us? What does he say to you, children? It's our second point. God rewards children who demonstrate God-pleasing obedience. God rewards children who demonstrate God-pleasing obedience. So children, you're commanded to obey your parents. That verse starts off, off with a command. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I'd like you to notice the positive aspect of that, the positive aspect. So Paul could have said, he could have said it like this. Children, don't disobey your parents. You'll get uh, consequences for that. But notice how he emphasizes it positively. Children, obey your parents. You'll be rewarded. Now, children, students, who likes to be rewarded? I thought so. I thought so. I think we all do, right? And that's a good thing. And there's a reward coming to you. So just hang on a few minutes and we're going to get to that. But before we get to that, let's talk about why should children obey your parents? Why should you obey your parents? Well, notice that Paul uses obey rather than submit. Uh, he uses submit with wives, but obedience is a stronger word than submission. It's how children display love to their parents by obeying. So children, did you know how you can show your parents you love them? By obeying them. By obeying them. Isn't that great? You, you, you can tell them you love them, and that's good. You should. But really, you can show them that you love them by obeying them. So why should children obey your parents? Well, first, children, you should obey your parents because it demonstrates obedience and respect to Jesus Christ. You should obey your, your parents because it demonstrates love and respect to Jesus Christ. So notice how Paul put that phrase right at the very end. Paul likes to do that. Obey your parents. Uh, we could have stopped with that, but he, he says, in the Lord. Okay, okay, in the Lord. Well, what's that mean? 
Well, going back to that example I first used about obedience, when we tell our, our children, just do it because I'm the parent. There's a greater reason for that. So children, there's a greater reason why you should obey your parents than just because of the fact that they're your parents. And that's because it demonstrates love and respect to Jesus Christ. Now, how is it possible for you to obey your parents? Well, only by being in Jesus Christ, only by having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how you can do it. Because you're in God's family, you have the power to obey and are expected to obey just like everybody else in God's family. Being spirit-filled is what enables you to obey your parents. And in obeying your parents, you're ultimately obeying Jesus. So children, just think about this. Students, if Jesus Christ were at your home this afternoon, would it change the way you obey your parents? Suppose mom and dad said, okay, Johnny, uh, I'd like you to put, uh, wash the dishes and put them away. And, and Jesus were right there in the room, standing there watching you. Would you do it like this? <sighs> Fine. I guess I'll put those stupid plates away. I didn't make that mess. I always have to do this. Why do I have to do this? Is that how you would do it? Or would you do it like, yes, I would love to do that. I would love to serve this family. I'm hoping that it would change the way that you would obey. And now Jesus is always present, even though we don't physically see him, but he is always present. So children, obeying your parents with that joyful attitude, not doing it half-heartedly, not with grumbling or complaining, not with muttering, all of those things really send a bad message about, about Jesus because he's put you in that family. So, so the Lord calls you to obey your parents wholeheartedly and with joy because you're doing that for the sake of Jesus. Secondly, children, students, you should obey your parents because it is right. It is right. So in, in Colossians 3.20, that's a very similar passage to this, Paul says that obedience of children is pleasing to the Lord. So Jesus delights in your obedience, children. You want to know what makes Jesus happy? Your obedience is what makes Jesus happy. That's a wonderful thing. So it's right because God is perfect God is the creator. God has given us more blessings than we could ever possibly imagine. And so it's right for us to obey God. In the same way, children, your parents have given you life. They've given you food. They've given you clothes. They give you a place to stay. So it's right for you to obey them. And even society recognizes that. If you go out to the store or the mall, there's, there's looks that you're going to get or looks that people will get if their kids are running all over the place doing all kinds of things they shouldn't be, right? So society expects children to obey their parents. In school, same thing. Uh, children are expected to listen and obey and there's discipline if that doesn't happen. So even society recognizes that obedience. So children, students, I'd like you to think about this. How does your obedience, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, how is that different from your friend's obedience if they're not a believer? So in other words, if, if you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, how does your obedience, how is that different than somebody who doesn't? I'm hoping that your friends notice that. Wow, you seem to obey your parents a lot better than I do. You seem to do things a lot differently than I do. That's how it should be, right? Because we're doing it for our parents, but really for even a higher goal for Jesus Christ. Third, children, you should obey your parents because God commands it. Because God commands it. So if nothing else, we should always do it because God commands it. Now, Paul is quoting here 
uh, from verse 1 there. He's quoting from the Ten Commandments. We get those in Exodus 20, especially verse 12. And the Jews recognized this high place that parents had in the Ten Commandments. So the first set of commandments are about our relationship with God. The second set of commandments are about our relationship with one another. And parents are like that bridge right between the middle of those two. So the Jews recognized, wow, God has placed parents in a really unique spot right here. So we ought to pay attention and see what we're supposed to do when it comes to this relationship with our parents. So God commands it. Now, when God commands something, is that a suggestion? Is that just kind of like, well, I think you should do this. If you want to, fine. If you don't, don't do it. No. A command of God is, is not a mere suggestion. So to disobey the commandment of the Lord is to disobey the Lord himself. So children, when you disobey your, your parents and their commands, you are ultimately disobeying Jesus and his command to you. Now, before we get to the reward that God offers to obedient children, why do you think Paul switches from obey in verse 1, obey your parents, to honor, honor your parents in verse 2? And how do these verses apply to adult parents, to adult children, I should say? Are adult children supposed to obey their parents as well? Well, one part of honoring your parents is obeying them. So if you want to honor somebody, part of that is obeying them. Uh, in the, we, we see a number of verses in the New Testament about honoring your parents. There's five other places where we're told to do that, to honor your parents. And in this culture, to shame your parents was one of the worst things that you could do. So Paul says, honor your parents. In verse 1, Paul is talking to children who are still at home under the authority of their parents. So again, children, if you're still at home under the authority of your parents, you are to obey your parents in everything unless they would be asking you to do something illegal, something sinful, or something dangerous. Now, verse 2, that includes everybody, children and adults. You're to honor your parents. So adults, you're not required to obey your parents, but you're still required to honor them. So how's that look like for you? How's that going? and the honoring of your parents. Probably something we don't think about a lot. I mean, what's that even mean as an adult child? What's that look like for me to honor my parents? Well, here's, here's a few examples. Helping them as they grow older, speaking kindly to them, praying for them, inviting them into your home and into your life, not slandering them, talking about Christ with them, and listening to them. Unfortunately, some of you may have experienced abuse or harm by your parents. So what's it mean to honor ungodly parents? Well, honoring ungodly parents means to call them to repent of their sin, to encourage them to do what is right, and to prevent them from doing further evil. So notice that children should obey their parents because the Lord has promised a reward. We've already talked about that. I, I, I ask you to raise your hands, and a lot of hands went up. I like rewards. I do too. So, children, did you know there's a reward for obeying your parents? Let's see what that is. Now, God could have said, just do what I said because I'm God. Just do what I said because you love me. And that would have been true, and we should have done that. But God's, God loves to promise rewards too, and that's what he does here. So, this reward is really twofold. God promises it will go well with you and you will live long in the land. 
So this part is a little bit different as far as interpretation. What exactly does that mean? But without getting too deep in the weeds here, we're going to see that there's two rewards that God offers obedient children. So first, the first reward is it will go well with you. It will go well with you. So children, students, raise your hand if you like to get spanked, if you like to get your phone taken away, if you like to get grounded, if you like to lose driving privileges. Raise your hand if you like any of those things. Nobody likes those things, right? As children, we don't like to get in trouble. So what I can say is this, life works best, children, when we operate according to God's design. Life works best when we follow God and obey His commands. And there's trouble that happens when we don't do that. So think of Proverbs 13, 15. In the King James Version, it says, the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. Most other translations, it says, the way of the treacherous is their ruin. So children, if we don't follow God's design for the way we're supposed to live, your life will be difficult. Things will be hard. Now, the second reward is that you will live long in the land. So children, if you obey your parents, you will live long in the land. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the time when Paul was writing, uh, it was pretty common for 40 to 50% of children to die before their 10th birthday. So just imagine that. Almost half of children died before the age of 10. So as they're looking around, kind of seeing this, they're probably asking their, their parents those questions. Why are so many dying? And so what the Lord is saying is, apart from, you know, an accident or an illness, if you obey, you tend to live longer than somebody who doesn't obey. It's not a universal promise. It's not, and hear me carefully on this, this verse is not promising if you obey Jesus, if you do everything your parents say, you're promised to live till you're 100 years old. That's not what it's saying. But it is a general truth, just like Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's not a 100% promise that you as parents, if you do every single thing right, it's a guarantee your child will be saved. But it's saying as a general truth, if you train a child in a certain way, that's the direction they will go. So, children, there's two rewards promised to you. Things will go well and longer life. Now, after addressing children, Paul shifts to those in authority. And this is our third point. God resists provocative parents. God resists provocative parents. Now, previously in verse 1, Paul has addressed fathers and mothers. Now he shifts his focus to uh, specifically target fathers. I believe by implication, he's also including mothers in this. It's just as true that mothers should not provoke their children to anger, but he's especially addressing fathers. So why does Paul single out fathers here? Well, in both the Hebrew and Roman world, the father was the head of the family. In the Old Testament, the father could have his son killed for being rebellious. In the Roman world, the father had complete control over his son for life. Think about this. He could have his son put in prison, punished, sold into slavery, and even killed. So the husband or the, the father had absolute power over his children. Now, as we've said before, the gospel transforms. It changes relationships. So God calls fathers not to rule as a dictator over their families, but to be servant leaders. So Paul's warning here to fathers and mothers by implication 
is not to provoke their children to anger. Now, this command is a little bit surprising. So if you're reading here in Ephesians 6, and it's saying, uh, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, there in verse 4, you can almost stop for a moment and think, I wonder why it says that. I mean, I wonder why it doesn't say, children, don't provoke your fathers to anger. I don't know about you, but I like that reading a little bit better, right? But that's not the way God wrote it. So we got to stay with what God wrote. Uh, so why, why does God single out fathers here? I mean, even in the Old Testament, the typical use of this verb was Israel provoking God to anger through their disobedience. So Paul is warning fathers about their interaction with their children. And why anger? Why not some other sin? Well, already back in chapter 4, Paul has already warned about the danger that happens when anger is not quickly dealt with. What's it do? It gives Satan a foothold. So Paul is saying, parents, dads, be careful of provoking your children to anger because we don't want to give Satan a foothold in the life of your children. So when reasonable parenting demands and punishment, uh, parents throwing their weight around, the abuse of authority can lead to bitterness and resentment in the lives of children. Lou Priolo has given a helpful number of ways in which children can provoke their, which fathers or parents can provoke their children to anger, and those are included in your handout. I'm not going to run through all of those. I'd encourage you to read those, though, and discuss those in your life groups. But there's a few more of these that I'd like to mention. So what are some ways in which parents can provoke children to anger? Well, one way is failing to distinguish between error of skill and error of the will. A failure to distinguish between error of the skill and an error of the will. So what I mean by this is, suppose your child is uh, reaching for a glass, and they're kind of at that stage where they're learning to pour for themselves, and, and, and the, their, their hand is shaking, and the water's going all over the place, and you come in there, and you see this great big mess. Okay, now you bring the rod down on that child for making such a great big mess. But what happened here? Was that an intentional act of disobedience? No, that was an error of the skill. All of us learn by making mistakes. There's nobody in here who has been perfect. And mistakes are just a way of a child growing. So we've got to, we've got to be able to distinguish from errors of the skill, where it's just that normal human learning process of making mistakes versus an error of the will. So suppose you told little Johnny, now Johnny, I don't want you... Uh, jumping around on the chairs, uh, there's some very nice um, lamps, you know, by those chairs, so don't jump around, and you go in there, and Johnny's jumping on the chairs and knocking over the lights, okay? That wasn't an error of the skill, that was an error of the will, so that calls for a discipline and correction that's different than in the first case. So parents, we need to be careful in this, in this area. Our children are different. Uh, our son who has special needs, who is eight, is different from our daughter who is 11 and doesn't have special needs. And both take a little bit different approach. There's correction and instruction for both of them, but we understand that the eight-year-old is not at the same place as the 11-year-old. So our parenting approach should be loving and kind and looking to recognize this. Is this an error of the will or is this an error of the skill? And I think if we're going to err, we should try to err on the side of grace. Just to remember that they're children, they're learning, they're growing. And so if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of grace. 
A second way that children can provoke, or that fathers and parents can provoke their children to anger is reactive parenting versus proactive parenting. So reactive parenting versus proactive parenting. Reactive parenting works like this. It's kind of hands off and then, oh my goodness, little Johnny, you should have seen what he's got on his phone right now, what he's been looking at. I got to call pastor so-and-so. We got to do this. We got to have that meeting and that meeting. And then we're just going to bring around all these people and we're just going to really pile into him. And then when that crisis is blown over, okay, everybody goes back to normal. We can just let him go. Don't really have to do anything. And then kind of going to wait till the next thing blows up and then we're going to do the very same thing. Why does that tend to provoke children to anger? Because it's very difficult to operate as a child when the only feedback and instruction and help you're getting is when you do something wrong, right? So proactive parenting is a lot different. It's coming along children, alongside of them throughout the whole journey, not just jumping in when there's a crisis. A third way that parents can provoke their children to anger is becoming lost in the screen world. Becoming lost in the screen world. So this online world, coming home, just being there but not being there, checking out. Parents, our children are real. They're not on the screen world. So when we're there, we want to spend time with them. We want to be with them. If you didn't know this, there's actually a feature on your phone that's called the health feature. And the health feature breaks down the amount of time you spend in all those different categories, online, phone, calls, messaging, and it, it gives you a little summary. And so that's very helpful maybe to review if you're spending a lot more time on your phone than you are with your children, maybe good to, uh, to evaluate that. A fourth way then that parents can provoke their children to anger is parenting out of comparison and if onlys, parenting out of comparison and if onlys. So it's easy for parents to look around and wish their kids were like somebody else's kids. Oh, I can't believe your kids over there. They've been sitting so patiently throughout this whole service. How do you do that? Boy, I wish my kids could be like that. Man, if I just had kids like that. Or I just wish they were more talented in this way. I just wish they could do like this. I just wish that. Or the if onlys. If only my child would listen better. If only my child would get better grades. If only my child this. If only my family could afford to do that. Whatever the case is. If only, if only, if only. Well, God, in his sovereignty and his goodness, has placed those exact children into your life, into your family. Not somebody else's, yours. And so expecting them to be somebody else's kids or acting like someone else's is a sure way to provoke your children to anger. And then finally, you can provoke your children to anger by being a savior parent or a paralyzed parent by being a savior parent or a paralyzed parent. The savior parent believes if they have the right structure, the right rules, the right teaching, if they put all these right things like, like mixing a cake, then it outcomes the right child. And so they can hover over their child thinking, I've got to make sure that I keep all of these right ingredients in the right order, in the right place, and I can't let any of them get out of whack. And so it really throws them off when their child does something out of line. Oh, I can't believe my child would do something like that. Oh, I can't believe what you did to my reputation. Oh, no, I'm going to be ruined here. So the Savior parent forgets who the real Savior is. They forget that it's the Lord who's responsible for the salvation of their children. And, and children are provoked to anger because they bear the brunt of, their, of the parents' failures and disappointments. 
But on the other side of the ditch, we have the paralyzed parent. So the paralyzed parent is almost afraid to act because they're afraid to lose that child's friendship. They want to be best friends with the child. They don't want to do anything that, disrupt that disrupts that, so they don't say or do things that they need to because they don't want to break that, that um, best friend relationship. Well, my child might not like me if I do that. Well, paralyzed parenting can provoke children because it puts the child in a place in the relationship that they were not supposed to be in, functioning as the best friend instead of, a ch instead of the child. So we could summarize all of those up really in terms of this, ownership parenting versus stewardship parenting. Are you operating out of an ownership mentality? These children are mine, I own them, I must control them. I must make sure that they do what they need to do and I will not let them deviate from that. Or is it a stewardship parenting? God is their owner. I'm just a steward. I hold them loosely in my hand. God has the freedom and power to do what he wants with my child and my job is simply to be a good steward of my children. I think you'll see where I'm going with that, that ownership parenting leads to problems. It's stewardship parenting that, that God calls us to. So we've seen a lot of things that parents shouldn't do, should not do, but what, what should parents do? So there in the text, it says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So both father and mother are specifically included here. And the responsibility of parents is to train and instruct children in the Lord. And can I say a word to step parents? You too are included in this. So even though those children aren't necessarily biologically yours, you have the same responsibility and calling as biological parents do. You're not less of a parent than the biological parent. Yes, it does take extra wisdom to navigate that relationship, but it doesn't lessen your calling or responsibility in the matter. Now, one responsibility of the parent is to nurture or to bring up children. Paul has already used this word for nurturing in his instruction to husbands. Now he uses it here in, in the parenting relationship. And this nurturing care is raising children up from birth to adulthood. Closely related to this is the training up. So parents are to educate, to teach, to instruct, to admonish their children. There's lots of other passages in Scripture that talk about this. Uh, Proverbs 15:5, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. So there's a blessing, a benefit for children and for parents who uh, fulfill their responsibilities. So what's that look like? Instruction and discipline toward your children? Well, it includes verbally giving them direction, encouraging them to right behavior, warning them, even rebuking them. So hear this, parents, by admonishing, by advising, by encouraging, by reminding, by warning, and by spurring on, you can help correct and redirect your child from wrong ways. So we've said that this command uh, to bring up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is for both parents. I don't want you to admit, don't want you to miss the significance for fathers. So dads, God gives you the primary responsibility for the education and training of your children. Dads, God has called you to model and live out the teachings and example of Jesus to help your children understand their new identity in Christ, 
to show them how this new identity affects all of their lives. And we kind of live in a culture where it's common for dads to really disengage from the process, to almost have a drop-off mentality. And that can be true in church as well, even for both parents. So in some churches, it's kind of the mindset almost that, that parents come in with is, I want to drop my child off in preschool, and then I want to pick them up when they're graduated, and I want to expect them to be able to be that Christian, ready to go, ready to come at college, being able to defend those attacks from those atheist college professors. That's what I expect from the church, and it's a pretty great setup, right? Because we just pay the pastors to do it, and I can just kind of sit back and, uh, you know, Watch TV, watch the ball game. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do you see anything like that in the text we looked at today? No, it's not there. It's not there, all right? So our instruction parents, and especially fathers, is to discipline and instruct our children and to bring them up in the Lord. So he says there, the discipline instruction of the Lord. What's that mean? It means it comes from the Lord, and it's about the Lord. So there's nothing wrong with teaching your kids how to fix a car, how to change a tire, how to uh, deer hunt, or how to build something. All good things, right? But just make sure you don't substitute that kind of teaching for your teaching about the Lord. Now, some of you wives may be wondering, "How, how can I encourage my husband? He seems to be pretty passive in this area. I feel like I'm the one that's really doing this all. How could I encourage him? Well, this is not an exhaustive list, but just a few things there. So, one, pray for him. Pray for him. Secondly, don't domineer. Don't jump in like a bulldozer bulldozer and plow him over and take over everything. But third, don't enable him. Don't enable his sinful activity and make excuses for him. Oh, he's he's so busy. Oh, I know he's got lots of things to do. Encourage him to fulfill his responsibility. And then fourth, don't gossip about him to all the other ladies, but encourage him to reach out for spiritual mentorship and accountability. Ask him if he'd be willing to join you, maybe in biblical counseling or mentorship with with other people who can encourage him. Parents, as our children grow older, they need a lot more motivation for obedience than simply do this because I'm the parent. Legalistic, and, legalistic rules and structure will bankrupt you in the end. The highest motivation is to please the Lord. So parents, how do you know if you're spirit-filled? If you're not provoking your children to anger, if you're bringing your, raising your children up with the goal of pleasing the Lord, those are evidences of being spirit-filled. Children, students, how do you know if you are spirit-filled? If you're obeying your parents, because you want to please Jesus. Children, students, how can you obey your parents? Not by trying harder, but by growing your relationship with the Lord. So I'd like to close with some hope to parents because some of you may be in some spots that really just are very, very tough. So what kind of hope do we have today? Well, first, God is the perfect heavenly father who was able to get an entire generation of children to the promised land. So one of my favorite verses, parenting verses in the Bible is in Deuteronomy 139. It's kind of an interesting verse because it talks about, the context talks about God killing off a whole generation of adults. You're like, I don't know, Josh, that doesn't sound too encouraging to me here. But the point is, God doesn't need us as parents to fulfill His purposes for our children. 
he was able to say to one generation of Israelites, you're out, I'm sufficient to raise your children and to get them to the promised land. And he did that. So parents, despite your failures, despite your weaknesses, despite your shortcomings, despite all the ways you fall short, God is able to do far greater than you can do to get your children to where they need to go and to where he wants them to be. It doesn't all fall back on you. Now, we can always take the wrong extreme on that and think, oh, great, then it doesn't matter what I do. God's just going to do it. That's not true either. But God is able to take care of our children in far greater ways than we ever could. Secondly, God is able to do far more than we can think or imagine. That's our benediction that we'll read in a little bit here, but just dwell on that for your parenting. He's able to do far more than you can think or imagine. Some of you, I'm sure, are, are thinking some pretty big things right now. God, I, I just don't know about my, my uh, rebellious teenager. I, I just don't know how that's going to work. I mean, I can imagine a lot of things, God, but I don't see how you're ever going to do anything with that situation. Or maybe it's getting you through that phase in life where you've got very little sleep and you just don't know how you're going to push through. But God is able to do far more than you can think or imagine. And then third, God is able to make all grace abound to you. As you approach God, He has abounding grace. God has lavished His grace upon you. He's pouring it out. God is not here with this little bankroll saying, okay, I'm giving you a little bit and you a little bit, but I got to kind of divvy it out just a little bit because I don't want to run out. That's not God. God is able to lavish grace upon you. So parents, there is more than enough grace for you for whatever you're facing. More than enough. There's plenty. How do we access it? Believe it and seek the Lord. So as we close here, let us go to the Lord in prayer, asking Him for help, both as parents and as children, to be able to please Him. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this time in Your Word today to see these verses, two parents and two children. We're thankful, Lord, by the way You have addressed children, by the way You have included children in Your plan of redemption. We rejoice at the baptism we saw today. Lord, we rejoice every time we see a child profess faith in Jesus Christ. We rejoice every time we see our children and are reminded of the way the gospel is simple enough for them to understand and the way you love children. And so, Lord, I pray today for our children in this tough culture that they're in. I pray that you will help them by the power of your spirit be obedient to please you, Jesus, and to obey their parents. And Lord, I pray for parents today. It can be a thankless job to raise children. It can be a thankless task to spend all those sleepless hours investing and caring for them. So God, lavish your grace upon parents today. And I pray for those here today in this congregation who might not have any children and might still be wondering, where do I fit in? I pray you will help them to see that it takes all of us in your body to raise children. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for being that great Savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as Josh reminded us that uh, the high calling, the difficult task of parenting, or the difficult task as a child of obeying your parents is something that we need the Spirit to control us in order to accomplish. We need to set our hearts, therefore, our minds, our focus 
upon the Lord, upon Christ, because he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We could leave this sermon and, and sit there and be like, oh, i got to exert myself more and more, which is partly true, but apart from Christ, we cannot do it. Psalm 127 reminds us, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders work in vain. So let us sing this song together in response that we would set our focus on the Lord. Would you please stand with us as we sing? our benediction together if you want to say it with me. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a blessed Thanksgiving.